I am uh, set up here a little bit differently than what we normally are used to here because this is going to be a different kind of message. Don't worry, I will include quite a bit of scripture. But this is going to be a little bit of a personal testimony. Now let me begin by saying that the most dangerous thing that you probably can do, especially as a preacher, is give a personal testimony. Or for that matter, talk about yourself, right? There's a balance, right? You know, when you hear somebody talking about themselves, mm, it can get a little bit too much, you know, or usually not too little. But I want to say to you right from the beginning here, first of all, I'm very, very honored to be called by John and the, and the church to come and serve in this capacity as associate pastor. But I want you to know, as I share these moments with you, everything that I share with you just now in this message that is good or seems good or is good is because of our good God. Anything that doesn't sound that good or maybe is a revelation of something that was a weakness in my life is me. But the grace of God is what takes us through the journey. So I'm going to take you through a little bit of an idea of how God brought me to this place. First, I want to let you know, many of you know, in fact, a number of you were gracious to send me cards. I, I, you know, keep those cards and checks coming, by the way. I would really appreciate it. If you're not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, if, if, if the Naples Gathering never sent me another physical card again, it's good for a lifetime because I had many of you write words of encouragement and cards, and I so appreciate it, you know, those written cards. That's rare today, as you know. So thank you for that. And let me just give you a brief testimony of what happened because, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding dramatic here, I really, for all good purposes, should not be here right now. I really should be dead. Or another way of expressing that would be that I really should not be here for other reasons like a severely damaged heart. So why did that not happen? I'll just give you a very short Reader's Digest version of what happened. On August 5th, I was preparing to fly the next day down here to preach. I was supposed to preach that weekend and one more weekend after that. But um, something happened that prevented me. It was a heart event. In fact, it was specifically a heart attack. I was coming home from the gym, and I felt uncomfortable, and one thing led to another. I started to, I got back home. I was feeling some discomfort and some sweating, and my daughter looked at me and said, Dad, I'm calling the ambulance. And she found my wife, who then called the ambulance. She didn't have her phone, and suddenly I was in the hospital. And uh, I had a sense that it was getting worse and worse, and on the way to the hospital, as the doors closed, and I saw three of my seven grandchildren on the front porch, crying and waving goodbye, I thought it was over. I closed my eyes and I said, Lord, it's been a great run. Hills and valleys, mountaintops and, you know, deep whatever you want to call them. And I'm, I'm ready to go. If you're ready to take me, I'm ready to go. Into your hands I commit my spirit. On the other hand, Lord... As my eyes are closed and I'm rushing to the hospital on the stretcher, if you have something for me to do, I'm happy to serve you. 
One thing led to another. I was having a heart attack for about seven hours total before I was on the table, and they did a cath procedure, and they went up behind my heart to what's called an anomalous artery. I was born with sudden death syndrome. Didn't know that till a few years ago, but that's another story. They did a procedure, and the doctor was talking to me during the procedure, and he said, 30 minutes in, are you having a, are you having a little bit of a discomfort? I said, yeah. I said, well... Uh, he said, that's good because I'm in your artery right now putting in two stents. Now, I was as alert as, well, not quite, but I was almost as alert as I am right now sharing this story with you. And after it was over, he said to me, Mr. Ricaldo, you're one of the luckiest patients I've ever had, and I've done many of these procedures. I said, well, doc, I don't believe in luck, but tell me why you think I'm lucky. And he said, because not only was this, this procedure successful and we avoided open-heart surgery, but you have no damage to your heart. Now, maybe above all else, that's the physical miracle. Not, you know, I'm alive and I'm speaking. I was joking with some of my friends. I said, look, they said, well, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm happy to be talking to you or anybody on earth right now because I'd be in heaven talking to people in heaven right now, <laughs> but I'm here. So I'm here by the grace of God, but then again, you're here by the grace of God. In fact, all of us who live and breathe any moment of our lives are here by the grace of God. So that's not a new concept. It's just a little bit more applicable for me right now. So as I share with you some of these highlights of my life, maybe these will be common to you, maybe they will not. But I felt in coming on staff, and I asked permission of your pastor well, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to come and serve with you here. If I could just share some, some highlights of my life. And uh, all of these are the grace. This is really called My Life, God's Grace. My Life, dot, 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 God's Grace. Really should be God's Grace, my life. <laughs> so I'm going to begin with the word wrought. Now, all of these words are going to rhyme. It's just so happy. You know how us preachers are. We like to alliterate and rhyme things. But this is how I decided to express this to you today. So the first word I want to share with you about my life is wrought. Now, why wrought? Wrought is a, a word that is often used as a, in the formation of iron. Well, my little application of this is that he wrought me by creating me, Psalm 139. He, he, he made me, he created me, and you know, everyone who is ever created, and that would be everyone, who's ever lived or lives now or will ever live, we're created in the image of God, and our bodies are not what's going to last. What's iron about us, what's lasting about us, is our spirit, our soul, the essence of who we are, that which will be transferred into heaven. When you're a born-again believer, you get a new body. So what is it that stays here and goes there? Well, I believe it's your soul and your spirit. So God created me in my mother's womb, and I was born January 15, 1963. Cold day in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So you didn't know I was a Hoosier. Any Hoosiers here by birth? Yeah, we got a few of you Fort Wayne folks? Yeah, yeah. I was only there for nine months, so I don't remember much about it. <laughs> but I was born in 1963, January 15th, and like all of you, I was born with original sin, and wired with certain talents and abilities and giftedness that was yet to be developed. Right away, it was clear to my parents that I had a love 
for music because right from the time I was very, very small, even they tell me when I was three or four years old that I was listening to, to record uh, players. Now, I, you know, anybody remember those? Anybody have them still? I still have a record player. Now they make these new ones that are kind of cool, yet you can get it across, you know, at these different stores. But back in the day, it was LP albums, right? So I, my, my parents tell me uh, that, uh, my mother particularly tells me that I burned out a couple of record players. I was listening to music all the time. And we had an upright piano in the house because it was a church plant and the piano was kind of at the house and some of the church services took place at the house. So what did I do? It was an old bulb went upright. Dave, and those of you piano players know what those were like. And I played and played and played, and I started playing since I was three, and mostly that led to me playing by ear and led to many years of ministry and music. But let me remind you that the verse that we often use when we talk about pro-life is really more about the fact that everyone is made in the image of God and precious in God's sight. So Psalm 139 13 to 14 says this, For it was you, Lord, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. That's you. That's anybody who's listening to this message. Even if you're not listening to this message, that's you. You're made in the image of God and precious. And then for me, from the time I was a child... I was exposed to the scriptures. Many of you know this passage from 2 Timothy 3.14 to 17. It says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. He said, You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom and salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you know that the word for infancy there is a child in the womb. It's a specific word of an infant, of a, of a preborn child, meaning that Timothy's mother and grandmother were exposing him to Scripture while he was in the womb. I'll never forget when I heard that, I thought, wow, that's, that's really me. I was hearing my father's preaching and hearing teaching, and in the house, the Scripture was there. I was hearing it while I was in the womb, and then, of course, as I was growing up as a child. And I learned very early on and began to embrace the reality of what's next in that passage, which is all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so then came the moment when he sought me and he bought me. See, he wrought me, then he sought me, and he bought me. If you're a believer in Christ, it's not because you loved God first. It's because God loved you first. He sought you. You didn't seek him. And so in my life, the Lord sought me in the context of a godly home and a godly church for which I'll always be grateful. And at the age of six on Thanksgiving Day, 1969, I walked the aisle at our church. My father preached a salvation message on Thanksgiving and I came to know the Lord. And, and so John 3.16, of course, we all know it. And hopefully that's been a reality in your life. But for me, and this is something I know that many of us here can relate to, Titus 3.5-7. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, 
Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Now that's a whole message in and of itself. But I picked that particular scripture because even though I didn't understand all of the nuances of that, all of the realities of that, that's what happened to me at six years old. How many of you came to know the Lord at a very early age, five, six, four, six, seven, eight years old? Anybody? A few folks here? Some of you came to know the Lord many, many years later. It's not better or worse. It's just the reality of when God invades your life and brings about transformation. So from the time I was six through those early years, look, I was just as much unsaved and on my way to hell as anyone that had lived a full life and regrets from the past and they come to know Christ later on. Look, I hadn't smoked any dope or swore at the Pope. I didn't spend a night with a shady lady. By the way, that's a quote from a song from Mickey and Becky. I don't know if some of you might know the old Mickey and Becky group from way back. Um, but when I was six years old, I said, preacher, I want him to save me. That's the song. That's me. A couple of years later, I had the privilege of being baptized at the age of nine. I understood enough about this to surrender to the Lord and then go into the waters of baptism and as a nine-year-old gave testimony of what the Lord had done in my life in those early years. I was a kid, but I was saved. It was very clear. I knew. My other friends were making professions of faith, but to what, to some of them were truly saved and some of them were not. I'm not making that judgment. I'm talking about the fruit of the life. I really had a desire, even at that early age, and I got, began to get a hunger for the Scripture. So the next phase was he taught me. So he wrought me, he sought me, he bought me, and he taught me. How did he teach me? Well, he taught me through some very faithful people in my life, my father, my mother, others around me in the church. But mainly he taught me in quiet moments, even as a young boy, in the scripture. He taught me two basic things. One was to live in fear. How many of you are living in fear right now? Anybody in fear? No. Oh, I mean the fear of God. You got, I was saying, do you see the difference? See, I caught you on that one, didn't I? Many people live in fear and anxiety because they don't fear God. If you don't fear God, you will live in fear and anxiety. But if you fear the Lord in the proper sense, then you will have the joy of the Lord and you will also have a way of being protected from the things that will destroy your life. And so I learned early that it was about respecting and honoring and loving my father and my mother, but it was about fearing God. I learned early that God is always high above, even my parents and other godly people that were around me. And so the scripture says, and I know you know many of these passages, and I, I won't take the time, but Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 14.26-27, Proverbs 29.25, and Proverbs is not the only book that speaks about the fear of the Lord, but it's repeated over and over again. And I love this particular verse. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life by which one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of a man brings a snare, but one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. So if you fear people, you will continue to have 
what I would call a pseudo-love, not only for people, but for God. But if you fear God, then you will cultivate an authentic love for God and an authentic love for people. During those early years, I began to have a desire to do more for the Lord and to serve him in the church, and I had a sense. My father, of course, was a minister on my mother's side, six generations of full-time ministry going back to the French Huguenots. So my heritage has fallen to me in beautiful places like David talks about. But it wasn't automatic for me. I didn't assume it, but I had a desire. And that led me to a place where finally I had a sense that God was calling me. I had a desire. And um, I learned early on that it wasn't just living in the fear of God. It was making sure that I was continually equipping myself with the word of God. So the word of God, his propositional truth, living in the fear of the Lord, and enjoying his presence in my life even as a young boy. Then there came a point where God caught my attention. Has God ever caught your attention in the middle of the busyness of your life? And he says, "Uh, uh, uh, take a breath. I'm calling you to something different. Now I happen to know the testimony of Pastor John. I know Mark McVeigh's testimony. I, I know a little bit of Dave's testimony. I know my wife's. I don't know all of your testimonies, but I, all I know is this. For, for sure, what I know is this. That God, in a riveting way, called Pastor John to what he's doing. He wasn't planning on it. In fact, he was kind of resisting it. We were talking about it last night at dinner. Mark McVeigh, we all know. You don't mind me saying this, Mark, about you. He's a Broadway legend. He is a living legend, but God decided to take him out of what he thought would probably be the, something that he would do the rest of his life to, to a different kind of ministry. He had a ministry before, even as a Broadway performer, as a believer, but God has brought him to a new place. The Lord did the same thing with me, but he did it a little bit earlier for me, and he did it by taking me back to the city of my birth. I was 16 years old, having a desire to go into the ministry but not really quite sure. I wanted a confirmation. And so I was on my way out to the Midwest to look at some colleges, and I ended up in Fort Wayne with my original youth pastor. And one night I was up in my room, and it wasn't this particular Bible. This is the Bible that came after that particular Bible in my life physically. But I said, Lord, I don't believe in Bible roulette. Have anybody heard Bible roulette? You know what that is? Where you go, Lord... Give me a scripture for today. You heard about the guy that did that? And the first scripture that he opened up to was Judas hung himself. He said, oh, my Lord, that cannot be from you. Lord, I'm going to give this one more shot. I've heard people, hurt, you know, God is moving their lives through his word and out of nowhere. So he opened up the Bible again to another passage, and it said, go thou and do likewise. Did you follow that? You got it? Yeah. That's why Bible roulette is not recommended, right? But that particular night, I was sitting in, in, the, in my bedroom overlooking, believe it or not, the hospital where I was born. And I opened up the Bible to a very sobering passage, Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as I read it and I saw 
the prophet's call was the title on, on, right before chapter two. And I read it and I said, okay, and then I got to this point where God is saying to Ezekiel, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. What? Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. So, whoa, whoa. And the next couple of verses talked about the righteous man, the same thing. If you, if you don't warn the righteous man, his blood will be required on your hand. And if you do, you've delivered yourself. Not you're going to be lifted up and have a mighty ministry all across Israel. You just deliver yourself. Good boy. How sobering is that? I would say among all the prophets, major and minor, and I think you all know this, but major is only because of the amount of words that they wrote. Minor, less words, but they were all serious prophets, legitimate prophets. Of all the prophets, I would suggest to you that the most sobering of them all is the call of Ezekiel. You can read it for yourself. Now, why am I sharing that with you? Because like so many of us, when God puts his finger and he catches you, like he caught me by surprise, in that moment, I resisted that. In fact, I said, I can't handle that. That's too much. That can't be me. And so I put it away. And it was one year later when I went to a camp called Harvey Cedars in New Jersey. If you're up in the Northeast, you probably would know about this camp, great Christian camp. And, and, the, and the guy who was speaking that week comes to the end, and you would expect at the end of a camp, it's a, it's a Christian evangelical camp, that there was going to be a gospel presentation and a call for salvation, right? How many of you have been, ever been to a Christian camp? As a, some of you had as a kid. And you, yeah, maybe some of you got saved in a Christian camp, right? So at the end, he's talking about what he's going to, actually he's introducing his message, and he says, I usually would give a salvation message, but this time I believe that God has impressed upon me that there's a couple of you out here that need to be called to the ministry. You're resisting, and God is calling you. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 2. <laughs> and I, I don't remember anything else about the message. I just took out my Bible, and I began to weep as I read it over and over again. I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. Don't worry, I wasn't. But there it was. And it was as if the Lord was saying to me and whispering to me, if you don't respond right now to this, I love you. You're on your way to heaven. You probably have an interesting life, but I'll go find somebody else. Okay, Lord. It wasn't an audible voice, don't worry. <laughs> but the Lord spoke it very clearly to me, and I said yes. From that point on, I went on to school, and I went to a college, a Christian liberal arts college. I won't mention the name of it had a crisis of faith. That crisis of faith led me to become a functional agnostic. And you are probably saying, what? After that call, after that life, I was the defender of faith in public school. I was taking on, on, on teachers when they would misrepresent Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And I became a functional agnostic? I'll tell you why. That happened. First of all, God was breaking me and he was preparing me for the future. He was preparing me for a passion, and a compassion for people who have serious questions. He was preparing me for a life that would integrate apologetics, the defense of the faith, to contend for the faith. I didn't know that at the time. But as I struggled with the big questions of life, even though I had been trained in some of them, the answers, 
God was taking me through a breaking time, and I had many, 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 many questions. And it was in that context that mentally I became a functional agnostic. I didn't throw the whole thing out. And I'll never forget when my father said to me, Tim, before you throw everything out, I want to send you to a place where you can safely, safely work out your faith. And I said, let me take a guess at You want me to go to a Bible school, right? He goes, yeah, actually I do. And so he got me last minute into Moody Bible Institute. I went to Moody Bible Institute, are you hearing me, as a functional agnostic. I, didn't, I wasn't even sure if I believed the word of God anymore. I had a lot of questions. For two months, I was a hermit. And after those two months, the Lord took me on a trip outside of Chicago on a train. And on that train to an assigned ministry, I was assigned to a Sunday school. Imagine I was a head of a Sunday school and I was a functional agnostic. I don't know what Moody was thinking, but I know what God was thinking. God was preparing me to meet someone that would literally change my life and bring me back to Christianity, and she was an atheist. I will not get into the detail of this because of time today, but one of the things I'm hoping to do in the near future here is to share some thoughts and some ideas and some training and equipping on apologetics so that everyone who is in the hearing of this kind of teaching will be prepared to speak to anyone, no matter how hostile they are, as an atheist all the way down to all the other types of religions, so they can present the gospel in an objective way in confidence. That's where we're headed. But on that day, I was headed out to the extremity of the suburbs of Chicago, and I sat down, and without getting into any detail, certainly right now because of time, I will tell you that I sat down across from a girl who was a junior in college. I was about in the same time frame in my undergraduate, and I was sitting down with this Bible. I had this Bible, and I was reading it like this, just like this, minding my own business. The train was packed, and she looked over, and she said, hey, is that a Bible you have there? I said, yeah. She goes, well, do you, do you, really, like, do you really believe that? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm having some struggles about some of the things that are in there, but generally speaking, I found it to be pretty true and pretty applicable in life. And she said, well, I have a bunch of questions about this. I can't believe anybody would believe the Bible. And that conversation over 30 minutes led me to bring her from atheism to agnosticism to theism to actually believing that the Bible is somewhat credible to actually considering Jesus and taking a look at the biographies of Jesus, which are the Gospels. And then she left. She said, I promise you I'll take a look at it. Now, I just gave you an outline of what many times God is calling us to do. You have friends that are atheists. You have friends that are agnostics. You have friends that are in different kinds of, of nuances of religion, nuances of Christianity even, but they're not saved. They don't know the Lord. They're not on their way to heaven. And God has made you a little Christ Sometimes I'm uncomfortable with that phrase, Pastor John, but a representative is better to say, an ambassador of Christ, to even plant seeds on the way to that person who seems like they're far away from God and will never come to the Lord. God gave me that rich experience. And so I was back. He used an atheist to bring me back to Christianity, and then once that, that had taken place, I knew what I had believed, and I began to train for the ministry, and then that led to me coming back to New York for a 
year run on staff at the church, the only church I've ever really been involved in the ministry in Staten Island. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to tell you a whole bunch of things about those 33 years, except just a couple of things. See, God caught my attention after he had wrought me and sought me and bought me and taught me. And then through the years, I found that God had a way of fighting for me. He fought for me. Now, that's not what you usually hear when you hear a testimony of someone in the ministry. But anybody who's been in the ministry, officially, so to speak, for many years, knows that there are battles. There are struggles. There are those who will oppose the truth. There are those who will try to bring division in the, in the church. It's almost inevitable. In fact, it's kind of like cancer. Do you know that we all have cancer cells? Doc, am I right about this? Some of you are doctors here. I'm, I'm, I'm always afraid to get into this kind of illustration because, you know, i got these people here who are doctors. But isn't it true that we have cells in our body that if they are, if they are not thwarted or kept back can bring cancer? Like, we all have cancer cells. It's a matter of our immunity systems, right? Well, just like that in the body of Christ, and it's true of every body of Christ, including this one. I'm not looking at anybody in particular, okay? Don't worry. <laughs> But there are seeds of division always in a church, and faction can take place and bring destruction all over the country. And many of you know, without my giving any illustrations, even in this town, as well as around the country, there are churches that have been destroyed by faction and pastors that have come under unbelievable strain, even in the context of legality and litigiousness. Now, why am I saying this? Because... While this is happening around the world, not just here in Naples or in New York or in other places, one of the great scripture verses that sustained me during a recent experience where this was happening in my life was Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will perform for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again, ever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I've had many discussions with Pastor John. We have had similar experiences in our ministry life. I'll just leave it there. But he has encouraged me. One of the ways that God brought me in contact with Pastor John was through Mark, who became a very good friend toward an unthinkable, excruciating time in my life over the past couple of years. And John began to relate to me his story, and he encouraged me. And he often would end the conversation by said, be quiet and let God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, I have to say, probably much less successfully than Pastor John did, I didn't always do that the way that I maybe perhaps should have. But generally speaking, that was the disposition that I took. And I've watched God bring healing. I've watched God bring, at times, consequences for those that would not turn back to the Lord and repent. I had to repent of things. I still do. But when a church is attacked that way, God cares about it because it's his church, capital C. It's his local church also. So I watched the Lord support me 
in moments when I was completely alone and with Anne and I were going through terribly excruciating times together with our family. I often turned to Psalm 143, 1 to 12. In fact, I even wrote a tune to this, which maybe sometime I'll have a chance to share with you. But please listen to this psalm. If you're going through something, we're all going through something right now, right? Probably something difficult. Here's a great place to live. I want to tell you, I was leafing through this Bible, the entire Bible this morning when I got up early. I went through the entire Bible because this Bible belonged to my paternal grandfather. My father dedicated it to my grandfather who was in the ministry. And then I had this in Bible school. And then my daughter went to Moody and she used it in Bible school. So I have notes from four generations in this Bible. Maybe that's a message for another time. Here's what Psalm 143, 1 to 2 says. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my pleadings. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. For no person living is righteous in your sight. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have been dead. Therefore, my spirit feels weak within me. Anybody know what that feels like? My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your accomplishments. I reflect on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a weary land. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be the same as those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your faithfulness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul. Save me, Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. And I love this particular upcoming phrase here. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Did you hear that? Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Anybody want level ground? I ran a couple of marathons in the late uh, 2008, 2009, and I ran New York a couple times, and it was for a whole purpose and everything. And there's eight bridges. It's not level ground. I was longing to run in Chicago because in Chicago, the marathon is straight. It's flat. God wants us to run the marathon in Chicago. He wants us to have level ground. For the sake of your name, Lord, revive me. Oh, my goodness, we can stop right there, right? In your, in, your, uh, in, in your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. In your faithfulness, destroy my enemies and eliminate all those who attack my soul, for I am your servant. I lived in that passage many, many months. It led to a song that I wrote, and I'll just give you a couple of examples from this song. Not sing it, but just... It's called a severe mercy. It was my psalm to the Lord. A severe mercy, Lord, I need. A severe mercy, I feed on your word like my necessary food. A severe mercy, I see. A severe mercy, I kneel down before you to seek you, to know you, your suffering embraced. I seek your holy face. Lord, hear my cry. Every tear and sigh, you hear the brokenhearted and the grieved. Lord, see me through waters I did not choose, uncharted streams that lead me back to you. A severe mercy I seek, a severe mercy though weak, I cry out in desperate passion for your presence, my Lord, your healing, your sword, the word of God. A severe mercy believed, a severe mercy conceived by you to bend, refine, renew, and revive me. 
O Lord. Consume me, O Lord, for severe mercy, I plead. So, through many trials and tribulations, the Lord has brought me to this place. Oh, brought. That's the last word. He's brought me here. He's brought me this far. He's brought you this far. And at any moment in our lives, when we know the Lord and we have the privilege of knowing him and knowing that we're okay in this life no matter what happens and we're really going to be okay when we get to heaven. Anybody looking forward to that? Anybody want to admit that they're looking forward to that? Nothing can compare. We sing about it all the time. But at any moment of time, when I'm thinking about a song of thanks to the Lord, I cannot help but think of this one. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to play it. Because this is my default song every time. And you'll recognize it. If you want to sing, you may. You may. 